0: Tech Talk, Tech Talk with Jess Kelly. This is News Talk.
1: Welcome along to this week's Tech Talk, Jess Kelly with you here on News Talk. Coming up over the next hour, we have an exclusive interview with the head of L'Oréal's technology incubator to hear how tech is driving the key trends in the world of beauty. Plus, we'll talk about keeping your kids safe online. As always, you can email the show techtalk at newstalk.com or you'll find me on Twitter at Jess NT. Now, L'Oreal is one of the biggest beauty brands in the world. They are constantly developing new formulas, products and treatments, and what's interesting is that technology plays a key role in every aspect of it. Each year at the Consumer Electronics Show, they wow the world with different innovations that really kick things on in terms of beauty and wellness. Guillaume Balouch is the head of L'Oreal's Research Tech Incubator and he joins me now. Uh, Give, you're so welcome to the show. I imagine that when people hear your title, uh, next to L'Oreal, they might be wondering how those two worlds merge. Can you give me a bit of an insight into what exactly your role entails?
2: Yeah, I started in the company about 15 years ago, and I'm originally an academic. Um, but about 10 years ago, L'Oreal was really seeing the the rise of digital health and all the um, Uh, evolution that's happening in the field of um, fitness and wellness, and they realized that there were going to be um, uh, digital services, tech, um, embedded in a lot of the future of our products. And so, um, as you said, it was, you know, just the beginning. So, there were no beauty companies at CES. Um, It was, um, uh, you know, our industry has um, conventionally been uh, industry driven by chemistry, right, by products that, you know, that people can apply on their skin hair and hair. Um, and so we had to kind of test and learn. And so um, the approach that we took was to, to create this team, this kind of tech team. And now it's been 10 years that we have it. And we try every year to bring um, innovations on the market that kind of bridge the gap between um, science, tech and creativity. So it's been a while now. We've been we've been doing this a long time now.
1: <laughs> the other thing that I think might surprise people is just how many beauty brands sit under the L'Oreal umbrella. Can you give me a bit of a rundown on some of the big ones that everybody will know?
2: Yeah, absolutely. L'Oreal is a 110-year-old um, beauty company. It's the number one beauty company in the world. A lot of brands that you probably experienced and didn't know were L'Oreal or L'Oreal. So for example, we're in luxury, um, in the luxury market with brands like Kiehl's, um, YSL, Armani. Um, We're in the professional market with brands like Matrix, Redken, L'Oreal Professional. We're in the um, dermatology and the um, uh, uh, active cosmetics market with brands like SkinCeuticals, La Roche-Posay, Vichy. And of course, uh, half of our business is done in the mass market with brands like L'Oreal Paris, um, Maybelline, uh, you know, Garnier. So a lot of these, we have over 35 brands in our portfolio globally. So um, what's really neat about L'Oreal is that we're in pretty much every distribution from salons to uh, to uh, um, dermatology offices to people's homes, um to uh, you know a- everything you can imagine to the luxury market so it's very nice for an entrepreneur like me that wants to create innovation um transversely
1: mm-hmm. and from your team's point of view like what is the objective is it to find more efficient way of doing things is it to bring more exciting products to the market or is it just you know to make people feel better about themselves
2: to say it uh, that way but it's all of the above and i think it's um And I think first, let's start with really the sense of purpose, which is what you were alluding to in the last two points you made, which is, you know, our sense of purpose in L'Oreal is to create the beauty that moves the world. And to create the beauty that moves to the world is much more than superficial. It's about um, creating products that make you feel confident, creating the, being able to guide people to the right choice, because they are a maze of choices sometimes, like you have thousands of lipstick colors when you go to the store, which one is the right one for me, to be able to give and hear what people need and then be able to in real time give them the right product without there being a long um, lag time. Um, and I think uh, this kind of bridge now between um, looking beautiful, but also feeling good and feeling beautiful is something that's really important to um, our innovation strategy as well. We've partnered, and I'll tell you after about those, but companies like um, Clue to, to help people with um, hormones and skin. We're doing a partnership with Verily to understand the biology of skin. So to be honest, I think, you know, globally, the the group strategy is really to create the beauty that moves the world. And I think that technology is an uh, enormous potential to be a lever to that. Of course, always understanding what the purpose is, like you said. Um, And I think beyond that, um, to your point, I I believe, and I think we're more and more growing into that um, within the group, that um, The product will be surrounded by service Uh, in the next three to five years. There will be services surrounding every product that we have um, in L'Oreal because it's such a large industry and an exciting and dynamic consumer that wants information and products that are tailored to them. So there is lots of opportunity, I think, with technology and beauty now.
1: Yeah, you mentioned the Consumer Electronics Show there. And, you know, this is the place to be in the world of technology. Every brand is there and they're showcasing the next big thing. And a few years ago, the biggest talking point to come from it was actually a beauty product by uh, YSL, which is one of the uh, L'Oreal companies, It's the Rouge Sir, if I'm saying that correctly, uh, which essentially let people create their own shade of lipstick on the go to match whatever it is that they were trying to match. And the amount of people who got in touch afterwards, because I spoke about it on the Pat Kenny show, and they were asking me, what is it? How can they get their hands on one? Does it really work? Uh, So there was a huge interest there. Can you just explain a little bit about the magic behind that one?
2: By the way, Jess, there's a, a link with um, Ireland uh, uh, with the Rousseau Measure, the product you're mentioning, because it's made by a company called PCH. Liam Casey is the is the CEO, is an Irish entrepreneur that we've been working with for a long time. And anyway, on that's a side note, but just to tell you about the Rousseau Measure, it's a, um, it's really for us a product um, and service put together that truly embodies what we believe beauty and technology is. And the reason is the way it works, as you have probably already, um, uh, and thanks to you, have uh, told your audience about, is the fact that I could use augmented reality with an app, see any shade that I want that's a trend that just happened today on the um, on the red carpet or in, um, uh, in, uh, in a magazine that just came out. And I could make the shade right there with the machine um, with just mixing the right amount of the three cartridges at the top. And what that does is it empowers people to be able to try the trend in real time without having to buy an entire tube um, every time they wanna try a trend. So there's a sustainability angle, but even more important is that it doesn't have to be a push Uh, process. It can also be pulled. You can um, create your own shade. You can be an influencer. You can send your shade to the community or to your friends, and they can try your shades in real time. And so um, there's this kind of aspect of using the augmented reality to help people try virtually, using the tech, the physical device to help you get to the right color and having the algorithms around color accuracy to make sure that it's really is what you what you see when you're virtually looking and that whole system took us about five years to make but we really believe it's the future of beauty
1: yeah i have to say that was one of the most exciting products that i covered and as i said the listener reaction was incredible and when you look at other tech trends. So, you know, you mentioned there about artificial intelligence and algorithms and all of this different stuff that's coming down the tracks. Uh, Is there anything catching your eye that you and your team are going, Okay, let's try and see how this works and how it fits in and how we can use it to better our offering?
2: Yeah, I think, you know, if you asked me this question five years ago, I would be saying a lot of tech things because, you know, um, I, even though I grew up in Silicon Valley, I'm a biologist. So I didn't really have the tech background when I started this team 10 years ago. And my first focus was really tech centric. So I would go to the CS I'd be like, OK, the next big thing is 5G, AI, uh, you know, robotics, uh, but what I realized over time is kind of what we uh, were talking about at the beginning, which is that first we have to start with what consumers need. And that's the most difficult part. And what I learned is that it's usually a combination of technology that goes in to answer that need for the beauty consumer specifically. So, for example, with Perso, we have AI with the algorithm for color. We have microelectronics with the and motors with the device. We have AR with, um, with the virtual try-on and all of it together led to people just the real insight, which is I have a million choices, which one's the right for me, Right one for me. But that being said, to answer your question, um, I think this, I, this kind of merge between physical and digital, the ability for objects to do incredibly precise things thanks to a combination of software and hardware, is where I think we will see incredible um, potential for beauty of the future. I'll give you an example. Imagine one day you could do what you saw in the movie Fifth Element. Um, I'm getting older, so hopefully people know uh, that movie now. But it's, the, it's there was a scene where she had um, her pair of glasses, the person in the movie, and she took off the glasses and all her makeup was made um it seems very science fiction but if you look at where robotics ai all of that's going today there will be a time where our fingers will no longer be the barrier to achieving what we want in the result of our beauty and i think that is an incredible a way to create the beauty that moves the world. So this is where I'm like really focused right now around tech. It's hard because you have to find the right technology, piece it together. And it's not just tech. It's also the right formulas because in the end, if you don't have a beautiful um, color, if you don't have a great skincare product that actually works, um, all of that tech behind won't matter. So this is where we have to kind of also bring in um, the formula itself too.
1: Yeah, part of that, I'm sure, or I assume, is about usability from the consumer's point of view, because you could have, say, a Daft Punk-esque helmet that you could put on your head and your full face of makeup gets done. But in terms of practicality, is that something that people really want to do? So how do you sort of balance that to ensure that, you know, you aren't just innovating for the sake of innovating, you're creating things that are cool, that work, but are also practical on a day to day basis?
2: You're so right, Jess. I mean, it's a perfect example of that was Um, the rooster measure. And part of the reason why on my team I have half tech people and half non-tech people is the half non-tech people tend to be much more in tune with what you just said um, around industrial design and ensuring that people will actually use. An example of rooster measure is that the device, I always wanted it to be small so that you could carry it around um, when you travel, but you can't carry that in your bag. It's still too big. So what we did is at the top of the device, you can actually remove a little compact. And we spent like six months designing that so that people could take enough of the lipstick um, for on the go for the whole day. Something like that is not tech, but it's so important to consumer adoption because if they can't take the lipstick with them, then they won't be able to reapply that great color that they made. Um, And we're constantly in that kind of um, intersection of industrial design, and uh, I've been really pushing in the, uh, for at least our team in beauty and tech, the importance of design, the fact that design, because people ex- has to live with people's lives and it has to be something that they actually will use. Um, otherwise, it's just for the sake of, of a trend.
1: Yeah, we've spoken now about some of the fantastic innovations to come from your department. I've been talking to innovators for the last 10 years or so. And I think... One of the most interesting conversations that you can have with people like yourself is around the things that end up on the cutting room floor. Because very often an idea will be, you know, will will come out of the ether. You'll work on it, you'll believe in it and it will crash and burn and not go anywhere. But it might lead to something else. So have you had those little speed bumps along the way that has, you know, frustrated you at the time, but then led you on to something better?
2: Well, of course, absolutely. There've been a lot of roadblock. I, I could tell you a roadblock every day if you wanted. It's a, um, but I, I had a friend of mine that once told me that it's um, innovation is half anxiety and half optimism. So I think that uh, it's probably. Uh, the case because I, I, um, I spend most of my days problem solving with the team. So, um, but okay, to answer your question, um, you know, we've had multiple examples. And I think the way you put it is exactly right, where we've had things that didn't work that led to other things that didn't work that led to things that worked. And I'll give you an example because it's easier to talk examples. Um, uh, when I started the team 10 years ago, one of the biggest um, consumer insights that I wanted to solve with tech was that 50% of people can't get the right shade of foundation. Mm-hmm. And it's it's ridiculous because we're living in a world of inclusivity today and beautiful, you know, uh, inclusivity and diversity. And yet 50% of people can't match their skin tone. And it's because we have too, way too many skin tones compared to the number of products we could ever put. So The first idea we had was to put a little device that could measure the skin tone. But we realized that a lot of the the stores didn't have that many colors. So we had a really expensive device that was only, was makeup artists could say, but I only have the amount of colors. I can do that with my eye. And then, so it failed. And we realized, ah, the real issue is that we don't have enough colors. So we started to develop a machine to make 22,000 colors with the device. Um, and that led to some success, but what we realized is that we can't put a machine in every counter. And so what we had to do is work with our laboratories to increase the shade offering. And once we had the shade offering increased, the online div- the, the uh, offline device, the device with the machine, and then made an online version, we finally led to a successful, Uh, business, but that took like four years. So there's this kind of story that I just told you has happened on many projects. And this is why I always tell my team, I go, if something doesn't work, it doesn't mean that it's not going to lead to something else. What we have to do is understand why it didn't work. As long as it's rooted in the right um, consumer insight, then we will get there. So yeah, I could spend hours, but I'm sure people uh, don't want to hear hours of me talking. So um, that's one example.
1: Yeah, no, but it's great to hear, though, because I I do think sometimes people think that, you know, if you work for a big group like L'Oreal, everything just smells of roses the entire time. So it's always nice to hear that element of reality. Yeah, I think it's great to kind of uh, acknowledge that because sometimes people might have the perception that, you know, if you work for a huge brand such as L'Oreal, that everything smells of roses all the time. So it's nice to... Acknowledge, accept and understand that things can go wrong for you guys too. Um, But as you said, it's all about how you look at things and build upon that from an innovation point of view. Um, I know I've taken up an awful lot of your time. My final question relates to, uh, you know, listening to people. So how much of what your team does is based on Consumer feedback and industry feedback, because we know that there's no shortage of, you know, beauty bloggers and influencers who will go online and either build something up or rip it apart, depending on their take. Do you have your ear to the ground in terms of what listeners want, or are you just, you know, putting your head down and focusing on the innovation? Because it is a bit of a seesaw that you have to try and balance.
2: It's a really good question because it doesn't have a, a very simple answer. I think that there are elements to it. Like, for example, the first is that if you're trying to create something that's really future facing, um, a lot of times consumers won't know um, what that is. It's kind of like that uh, Ford car quote, where it's like, if I could, uh, if I uh, listened to consumers, I would have built a faster horse. Um, and I think that um, there's elements of that. And yet, if we build tech for the sake of tech and we don't understand what people truly need, then we will build things that don't solve problems. So I think when it comes to our innovation and tech strategy, we try to understand the global needs of consumers around beauty that have been tensions for them. That, and then we go to a second layer of, will technology be the only way to solve it? And believe it or not, that funnels a lot out. Um, So this is first on the insight. On the trends and listening to consumers, there are different elements. Like I think when it comes to our laboratories, we have both. We have social uh, listening communities. We have much better way through digital to reach consumers to understand their real-time needs. Um, we're working on lots of new personalization projects where each individual consumer has a specific measurement of their beauty that we can then make for them and tailor make, which is truly listening um, to a consumer co-creating almost with them. Um, and and then there are, are moments where we actually use the technology itself to evolve it, thanks to what consumers say. I'll give an example of... of um, uh, Bruce sur majeure that we were talking about. If over time we see people are using shades that we didn't think we can start to develop better shades on the market in real time, we can also help them to evolve the algorithm to be more tailored to what their uh, needs are. So I think, um, you know, it's still a balance, there's still a, a consumer appetite to have um, you know, um, people around the world that are experts and influencers give them their their vision of um, the next big trend. And then there's this whole new element of co-creating and listening to people and for me it's another example of why tech is going to be so important for beauty because you have billions of people in the world and each one has a different definition of what their beauty needs are and only way to reach them is through technology so I think you know it's a combination of both but definitely the part of listening is a big and booming part of what we do today.
1: Well it's been an absolute pleasure to listen to you for the last 20 minutes. Uh, it has been fantastic to talk to you. Thank you so much for your time and hopefully I'll get to see you at the Consumer Electronics Show next year. That is Gieve Balouch, who is the head of L'Oréal Research's tech incubator. Tech Talk with Jess Kelly. Yeah, this is Jess Kelly with you here on News Talk. And coming up after six here on News Talk will be screen time with uh, our favourite John Farty. John, what do you have this week?
3: I have all sorts of great stuff like I do every week. Cool, Jess, thanks so God much. Off you go. There's a great new movie released this weekend called Bodies, Bodies, Bodies. All about these Gen Z, people like you. who I'm are, a
1: millennial. Yeah,
3: who are uh, in a mansion and they start playing this game like Murderer and it's a really intriguing horror comedy it's great I have the director of that uh, Dutch lady called Helena Radgen uh, Luann Pearl on her favourite movie Mark Royal on all the week's new releases
1: Wow busy show as As ever as always before I let you go uh, quickly on Wednesday or Thursday Thursday it was Disney Day yeah and Disney did this offer whereby you could sign up for two quid, regardless of whether you were a returning customer or a new subscriber. Uh, what do you make of Disney Plus? Because there's so much out there mm. and all these services are super expensive. So people are now trying to decide, is Netflix better value or is Disney better value?
3: I don't know if it's better value than Netflix, but I've certainly be surprised by how good it got in, say, the last 18 months. Because You know, there are now shows that you're going to for Disney+, Plus, like Dope Sick, with Michael Keaton all about the opiate crisis in America. There's a great show that no one has watched and they should call Single Drunk Female, which was the most hilarious thing I think I've seen all year. There are movies like the last Wes Anderson movie, uh, The French Dispatch, that... You know, six weeks later I think was on Disney Plus they have such stock there's all the Star Wars movies mm-hmm. there's the Simpsons there's Family Guy I do think it's worth it in a way I possibly didn't 18 months or two years ago I think when they brought the star dimension that's yeah. one of the streams on it with the more adult content and I don't mean that in a triple no, X like, way but I just mean
1: it has Grey's Anatomy and all those exactly. kind of box sets that you'd
3: watch so there is definitely more bang for the book on Disney Plus than I had previously thought two years ago so I'm a big fan of Disney and I think they've really upped their game now I know not that you've asked me this but you also now have as you well know Amazon and Apple right and people mm. are raving about the Lord of the Rings well some people are I think it's pretty good so far I have to say the Rings of Power and that's on Amazon Apple TV for instance at the moment is Bad Sisters right yes. which is great all of which I've seen because I got the 10 of them and it's great just to say keep going with it if you're okay. watching it but if you look at that those four things Netflix, Disney Plus Amazon and Apple TV It is a lot.
1: It's a lot of money. Like, it's a lot of money.
3: So what what do you get rid of? Do you get rid of your traditional cable, Sky, BBC Mm. package? People don't want to get rid of that. So I struggle to see how four serious players who have hat loads of money behind them are going to survive in this race because I don't think there's an appetite for 4 to be honest.
1: I don't I don't think it's the appetite. And I don't think it's the money. Like I yeah, know myself. Yeah. I in the last little while, I ditched Apple TV for a while mm. and I've resubscribed because I want I want to yeah. watch Ted Lasso again. Yes. My favorite show of all time. Yeah. So I've subscribed for that one show, but once I'm done rewatching it, I'm going to ditch it again.
3: What they need to do to win the race, and I think that's why Disney may be ahead of Apple and Amazon, is they need to get the water cooler shows. Yeah. Right? So Ted Lasso was one of those and had a life months and even years after it came out. So at Disney have been clever about that with shows like Dope Sick and more to come. They are doing that Mm. and the other two are going to have to do that. And that's why The Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power is the most expensive TV show ever made. It's over a billion, Mm. you know, so there is there is huge money in this. But as I say, I think it's a race because I don't think all four of them in 10 years time will be in this because I just as you say, there isn't enough money out there.
1: But then you've got Paramount and Peacock and all of these ones. It's just ridiculous.
3: Well, the whole Paramount thing, I haven't even touched that. And I'm supposedly a TV reviewer because I don't have time, you know? So I don't know how Paramount are going to go.
1: Well, if you want to listen to a supposed reviewer uh, talking (laughs) through movie and TV, stick with us here on News Talk. John will be here after six. Thank you. Now, earlier this week, Cyber Safe Kids issued its annual year in review report. It's a pretty comprehensive document. It talks through... There are different findings about the behaviours, the online behaviours of 8 to 12 year olds. Some fascinating stats in here as always. And I'm delighted to be joined by Alex Cooney, who is the CEO of Cyber Safe Kids. Alex, you're very welcome back to the show. Uh, for those who may have missed it, uh, give us some of the top line stats uh, from your
4: from your research. So the biggest things would really be um, highlighting the level of access that children in this age group. So it was eight to 12, nearly four and a half thousand, eight to 12 year olds. So children in primary schools. Um, And we wanted to, yeah, as I say, highlight the level of access that they have to the online world. Um, So 95 percent of the children we surveyed said that they owned their own smart device. Uh, then 87% of them said they were signed up to at least one instant messaging or social media account in their name. Mm. Uh, both of those figures represent an increase on last year. So the last year it was 93% of uh, smart device ownership and 84% of social media um, signups. So, yeah, like we're seeing this going in one direction. And then I suppose just in terms of picking up on the access point, you know, we do ask children around you know if they have any rules around the use or access um at home and one of the the, one of the statistics that stood out was that over a third of children so 34 percent of children told us that they could go online whenever they wanted to and another 15 percent told us that they don't have rules at home and yet we did want to pick up on that one because we think ground rules is such a you know, helpful way of um, supporting kids in terms of their use and access, and kind of managing and uh, that that side of it. Um, so, yeah, interesting to see quite a number of them reporting that uh, that they they had that kind of unfettered access. Um, and then the other thing I suppose we highlighted was around the gaming. So, gaming is hugely popular. Eighty-one uh, percent of the, all the children that we surveyed were playing at least one online game. Um, and, you know, there's obviously huge variety in the types of games that you can play. And, and there's loads of great ones out there. But we then asked a, a question around, you know, playing over 18s games. And overall, 19% of the children played uh, a, a game with uh, an age rating of over 18. But when you break that number down by gender, it's actually 8% girls and 31% boys. So almost a third of the boys that we surveyed said that they were playing um, an, an, a game, with, uh, had played over the last year a game with an age rating of, of 18. And yeah, it just, we wanted to highlight that, you know, essentially these are adult content, adult rated games. Um, and we do need to really think about that access that children have to that kind of content.
1: So I heard a lot of talk this week about your research and your stats. And it is fascinating when you hear them all laid out like that. But one thing I suppose I was a little bit baffled by was some of the conversations that were had were almost scratching the head going, Jesus, how do we get to here? Whereas I feel like I've definitely spoken to you numerous times where we've known this is coming down the tracks. We know that the pandemic expedited young people kids getting online maybe having more unsupervised time online so are you shocked by the stats that you found am i being too cynical in my thinking here
4: uh no i'm not shocked by because as you say we've been seeing these trends year on year and um they're not going down they're tending to go up as a certainly with the the smart device ownership and the social media stats um i think i i, I you know smartphones is something that we focus a lot on in kind of discussions you know when children are getting a smartphone when's the right age for a smartphone and we're not so focused on other types of devices and actually in this particular group of kids 8 to 12 year olds tablets are the most popular device followed by games consoles third place is actually the smartphone and so we see that see that balance shift as children get older so by the time they're 11 12 smartphones tend to be the kind of be growing in popularity and so by the time they're 12 most children have a smartphone but it's I think we get you know a lot of people are probably thinking about the smartphone when they're thinking about that statistic but actually it's it's a broad range of of devices and certainly in my experience as a parent and talking to other parents absolutely this bears out in reality that you know children have tablets and games consoles and you know eventually they'll get the smartphone as well and you know that that's all very positive but I think there are you know, implications around how we manage that access.
1: Yeah, and I, I've i had, as I said, I've said this a few times there, I've had so many conversations on the back of this report during the week. And one of the things that I keep coming back to is what you've alluded to there, it's not about the device and it's not about beating yourself up as a parent if your child watches 10 minutes on a tablet versus half an hour on a TV. And it's not about beating yourself up if your child has a smartphone at the age of nine. It's about ensuring that you are equipped to parent whatever tech they're utilizing. So whether that is limitations, open conversations, knowing how to troubleshoot when something goes awry, that's what that's what I think is the solution to this conversation, rather than having this annual conversation of God, isn't it mad? It's the same with the leaving cert. Every year, every like this time of year, every year we go, we should reform the leaving cert. And nothing really changes. So do we think, do you agree that we maybe need to shift our thinking in this and stop going, Jesus, dreadful that kids are on tech and maybe better equip parents to deal with the challenges and opportunities that come from technology?
4: Yeah, I mean, absolutely, and I and I think what one of the reasons that we publish this data is is to encourage those conversations. Mm. So we do want people talking about it, but we don't want people talking about it and then, as you say, forgetting about it. And then the next time you bring it out, it's the same the same conversations, and and nothing's really changed. I think we haven't yet worked out quite how what our responses to this, you know, uh, as a society, and and you know, we we can look at where responsibility lies for children being online, but certainly parents clearly have a role right and one of the things that we say when parents ask us as as it's obviously a question that would come up quite a lot in our parents talks and so on you know when is the right age for my child to get generally it's the smartphone but actually you could extend this to any device of their own and we would say when you know when you've really you know you've got to think about your readiness as a parent to parent your child on that device you know with you know that's the important aspect of this there is a responsibility that comes with a a child, a young child being online. So it's really the the readiness of the child, sure, but it's the readiness of the parent to take that on and to kind of engage because it's going to be a long journey and it's all about... And I know i've probably used this analogy before but it you know that road safety that you know Mm -hmm. if you if you think about how we parent our children to ride a bike safely it is a process it's not a you know click your fingers hand them an adult bike and say off you go it is a process we start out with a little toddler bike with the training wheels and the helmet and in a safe park space and we run alongside them shouting instructions but that evolves over time and and the whole point is that you're preparing them for a time when they're going to go out independently make their own decisions Uh, And you hope all you can do is hope that you've prepared them well enough to mitigate against the risks that exist, but also to make the most of this fantastic opportunity to ride a bike, uh, you know, independently. So we need to be thinking in that same way in terms of children uh, and their ownership of devices and their access to the online world. You know, there's many opportunities, there's many positives, but it's got to be balanced out with that preparation and, you know, being fully prepared for this exciting journey that they're going to embark on.
1: Yeah, I I do think that it's the support and the education of the parents. And I know that your organisation has done a lot in this regard. I know the ISPCC has done a lot in this regard. So if you are a parent and you're sitting out there going, geez, where do I begin? Just reach out. Like there are so many places that will try to point you in the in the right direction. And the beauty and the madness of all this is that nobody has it figured out yet. It's like every other aspect of parenting. You could read all the manuals and yet something will crop up that has never arisen before. So I think it's just about being eyes wide open. The other thing I wanted to talk to you about though, Alex is, you know, you surveyed eight to twelve year olds. And as you said, 87% of that cohort had their own social media or instant messaging account. Now I have been that person who've read through the terms and conditions of a lot of these social media companies, accounts and messaging services, and they have terms of use and they have
4: different, you know, um, t's and c's in place. But clearly, they're not that effective. No, uh, and actually, yeah, we've looked at this as well. we looked at it specifically after the day um, the digital age of consent was introduced, mm. uh, because we wanted to explore what had changed uh, since that since that introduction. Obviously, in Ireland, that's sixteen. Uh, and our findings were that not enough had changed at all. It was really, uh, the conclusion was that when we looked at this for two years running, um, you know, essentially it was the age, uh, age restrictions are all too easy to bypass for a determined child. That was the conclusion. And, you know, that is something we do really need to look at. And it, 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 you know, it is tricky because some of these social media sites, It you know, we have to really look at, I was chatting to the psychotherapist, Coleman Nocturne the other day, and he said something interesting that when we were talking about the over 18 games content, and he was saying, you know, it's all about the developmental readiness of a child to, you know, absorb what they're seeing. Um, in in these online settings, you know. So are they, if if they are seeing things before they're really able to process it, you know, that can uh, be problematic, you know, because then they won't understand it and there's no context. And, you know, so I do think we really do need to look at this whole, how do we manage, I mean, to one of it, like manage uh, restrictions and uh, access to this more inappropriate content for children. Some of it is through education, so you're you readying the child, you know, and, and encouraging them to talk to a trusted adult and, you know, being able to exit from situations that they find themselves in, that maybe make them feel, feel uncomfortable. And some of it is down to the companies themselves, the online services that provide these environments, you know, because we've talked about this before, you know, they... They build these environments and safety is often not a central consideration and children's safety is not a central consideration. It's often an afterthought. Mm -hmm. And and that is problematic. And in the future, we need to see that that safety is an integral part of the design, especially in environments where children will gather. You know, and I think we need to be really having these conversations now before things like the metaverse become much more real. Uh, Because children for sure will want to be in those environments and it's going to feel really a lot more real um, than than some of the things that are available now, you know, in terms of where they are and how it feels to maybe be verbally abused or so on, you know, so I think we really do need to start figuring some of this stuff out. We'll be talking about all of this as it continues to
3: evolve
1: and as time goes by because we are still feeling our way through it. But to reiterate the point, if you are a parent, if you're feeling a bit lost, reach out to organisations such as CyberSafe Kids or the ISPCC because they do great work and they can guide you through it. Uh, Alex Cooney, CEO of CyberSafe Kids, as always, thanks so much for joining us here on Newstalk. Thank you. Tech
0: Talk with Jess Kelly.
1: Welcome back to Tech Talk. This is Jess Kelly with you here on News Talk. As ever, if you want to get in touch, you can email me techtalk at newstalk.com or you'll find me on Instagram at Jess Kelly NT. And we're going to stick with Instagram and indeed the world of meta because I'm joined now by Louise Holmes, who's the Director of Creator Partnerships EMEA for the company. Um, Earlier this week, I noticed that a number of content creators were at the Meta offices for the Creators of Tomorrow program launch. Can you just tell me a little bit about what this initiative is? Yeah,
0: for sure. I mean, taking a step back, it's worth just nodding to why creators are so important to Meta. Uh Uh, On our platforms, we really see that creators are the heartbeat of culture, community and content across our family of apps, whether it's Instagram, Facebook, or the work we're doing with Oculus. And we've also seen that sort of wider the societal trends are moving away from trust in institutions and corporations and leaning more towards individuals and particularly to individuals who earn a living through their creative expression. And this is why as Meta, we think it's so important to, to lean into this space. And whether it's artists or hairstylists or skateboarders or comedians, we've seen that creators drive so much of the passion and creativity on our platforms. And this is the content that people want. People now consume culture through the individual creators that they follow, whether that's a journalist like yourself or a celebrity or a video creator. And so our goal at Meta is really to be the best place for all creators to tell their story, grow their audiences and build sustainable businesses. And that's really our key priority, I suppose, as we move towards uh, this vision of the metaverse. Uh, We really want to make sure that these creators of tomorrow have access to the cutting edge tools, technologies and resources so that they can be at the forefront of the opportunities.
1: Yeah, it does sound like a great opportunity. I follow quite a few of the creators who are at the Dublin offices online and to see them, they were so happy. They were so honoured. They felt like they were almost getting knighted, being invited into the HQ and getting a tour and getting time. But I'm interested to know what qualify someone as a creator that gets the time and attention of meta because we've seen the movement from big huge influencers that have millions of followers to the micro influencers right down to just you know trend setters who might only have 100 followers but they have their finger on the pulse so what counts as a, as a creator from in, in your eyes and in the eyes of meta
0: i think you're absolutely right uh, jess in talking about people who have the finger on the pulse and it goes back to what i said at the very beginning about Creators really being the heartbeat of culture and driving culture. And at Meta, uh, the team that I work with works, you know, with, with sort of the most influential creators and public figures across EMEA, but also with these creators of tomorrow. We spend a lot of time curating content, watching trends, seeing who's emerging. And this initiative that we've just launched really is designed to celebrate and recognize the most sort of innovative and diverse set of creators who are inspiring a new generation of content creation. And these are the voices and the creators that are really beginning to break out amongst their communities online, whether they're gaming creators or NFT artists, or in the case of some of the Irish um, creators that we've identified, people like uh, Muntour Meg, who we've seen is a teacher, but is such an enthusiast about the Irish language. or or somebody like Amanda Ade, who we recognize as being such a a powerful social voice on issues like the importance of representation. Mm.
1: And just tell me a little bit about the support and the guidance and the access that these creators are getting through this program uh, because I think everybody the beauty of Instagram in particular is that once you have a phone and a camera you're laughing you know you don't need it's not rocket science you can just get started straight away but I think there is a different element in terms of finessing your content uh, utilizing the right hashtags making sure you're using reels if it's applicable you know small things like that I'm sure make a big difference
0: Yeah, you're absolutely right again, Jess, and that's why our team is here. You know, our ambition is to unlock the potential, not only of the tools and the products and the features we have, but then to use that to unlock the creator's potential and whatever their goals might be, whether it's creating social impact or or building their businesses. And what we're hoping with this program is that this initiative will showcase these creators' support them in their journey, and really nurture their careers over the next period of time. And there'll be a couple of different initiatives. Some will be educational sessions, as as you rightly say, to really understand um, the different monetization products we have, perhaps to understand in real detail the safety features and tools that we have on our platform. Um, And there's also sessions we run called reels schools where you really do learn the tips and the tricks and how to make the most awe-inspiring reels. So there's some of the things that we'll be covering as well as giving these creators uh, where we can access to industry events. And I really just wanted to highlight I suppose one uh, huge temple moment we're looking forward to in November. We have a uh, meta creator week in London in the iconic Tate Modern uh, Gallery and we'll be inviting around 150 of our creators of Tomorrow from across EMEA, alongside some of our more uh, emerging and established superstar creators. There'll be 500 plus creators in total. And these sorts of events will give all these different types of creators the opportunity to connect, to collaborate together, to learn from each other, And often we find that bringing together creators from different verticals or different regions exposes them to new markets, new audiences and new opportunities. So we're really looking forward to to hosting uh, the creators from Ireland in this event in London. And hopefully it will inspire them uh, to learn from other creators, to learn from each other uh, and to find inspiration on our platforms too.
1: Yeah, I think it's great that it's being formalised. This community is being formalised and it's being supported because up until now, it was like neglected freelancers, people going out on their own and just try, trying to wing their way to success. And obviously there's huge money involved. So it's great to get, uh, see them getting supported. I want to pick up briefly, you just mentioned the word safety there when you were talking through some of the, the tools that you're teaching these uh, influencers and you know, content creators. It can be tricky and difficult to navigate when you get a bit of a profile. You know, if you started making videos in your bedroom during the pandemic to entertain yourself and all of a sudden you've gone viral and you've thousands of followers, and while that's nice to begin with, everybody has an opinion and not all those opinions are nice. Uh, So it can be tricky to navigate getting online famous or Insta-famous. Is that something that you address and that you help people deal with?
0: It really is. Um, Whether, uh, and just to give you an example, we we often work with Um, celebrities, TV celebrities, contestants on some of the reality shows that you'll be well aware of who are becoming famous for the first time and don't know how best to navigate that, that world of fame and then the pros and the cons that come with it. And equally we'll be doing similar safety schools for these creators of tomorrow where we can help them understand the products that we have that allow them to control Features like hidden words or limits or comment control, and we also then run things like safety school, a bit like the real school, where we handhold and educate in in how to use these tools so they're most effective.
1: That is great to hear because it is something, it's just like when someone back in the day used to go on Big Brother, all of a sudden this normal person is famous and they're met with the media. It can be tricky to uh, to navigate. Um, I'm sure there are people listening now who want to get involved because we know every survey that's done that asks kids what do they want to be when they grow up, it says influencer or, you know, I want to be an uh, an Instagram star. Can anybody get involved or is it a curated program from Meta's point of view? This particular initiative
0: is a curated program, but we do have many accessible tools on our platforms. uh, Instagram uh, at creators account that anybody can lean into and follow and regularly see updates in terms of the products, the features, the tools and the tips and tricks that, that we offer on our platforms.
1: Awesome stuff. Well, look, there is plenty of resources as uh, Louise just mentioned. There online, you can find them. Get involved, and sure, you never know if this come back next year. You could be one of those creators uh, getting the VIP treatment at Meta HQ. Uh, Louise, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Thanks so much for joining us here on News Talk.
0: Thank you very much, Jess. Nice to talk to you.